listen to this Sporting Kansas City episode of Fountain City Sports Media, in which we'll break down the quarterfinal performance against the Philadelphia Union and all of its heavy-hearted and disappointing glory. However, we do have a bright spot to this gloomy episode, along with my friend and colleague Reese. Today we have a guest analyst slash beer reviewer on the pod, subbing for Armando, who's on vacation. Boo! Boo. (laughs) Just kidding, Armando, we hope we're having a great time. But we're going to have a lot of fun without you. So a big hello and FCSM welcome to fellow Kansas City fan, Noah. How are you, Noah? I'm good, guys. It's great to be here. You know, I... You guys are doing a sports co- sports podcast. You got to have me on at least once. You know, oh, more than once, man. Local local guy. So yeah, dude, you are like Kansas City correspondent, man. Our feet on the ground, our eyes in the sky. Ask me anything about the Chiefs or Royals. I should have an answer for you. Absolutely, uh, Noah. The last time I saw you was at Reese's wedding. Yes, that was. That was a good time, man. That, Some good that was times. super fun, man. That was a pretty fun party over at the winery, just like eating barbecue and. Oh, oh! Did I ever tell you? Did I ever tell you guys this story about the beer at the wedding? I don't think I'm so. I'm not sure. Okay, so here's here's the story. You know, I work at a Boulevard Brewing Company. It's a big part of my life. My wife and I actually got married in the small uh, original tap room over the brewery. And six months later, we had kind of our wedding reception party. So to make our jobs a part of the wedding. My wife works at Amagoni Urban Winery in the West Bottoms in Kansas City, and we had the wedding reception party at the winery. Now, to kind of get my something blue into the wedding party, I'm like, I would like to have Boulevard beer at my wedding party. So I picked up a six-barrel keg of Tank 7 and a six-barrel keg of American Kolsch. Now, for those that don't know Boulevard beer that well, American Kolsch is like a basic well, American, you know, Kolsch-style beer. It's light. I think off the top of my head, it's like 5.1%. Tank 7, eh, not so much. You know, that's a big 7.5% chonker beer. So I got those two pony kegs, those six barrels, and I brought them to the winery with me. And I'm like, I'm going to hook these up. And they go, oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. You know, someone here will hook them up for you. And throughout the wedding party, everyone kept coming up to me saying, man, this American Kolsch is super freaking good, man. And, you know, people do like the American Kolsch, especially if you like domestic, you know, lighter style beers. And I'm like, yeah, it's, it's a good beer. It's a good beer. And it wasn't until the end of the party when we were unhooking the kegs that I found out they had hooked the Tank 7 to the Kolsch tap handle and the Kolsch to the Tank 7 handle. So everyone that was going back for like seconds or thirds on those Kolsches were getting Tank 7s in them. I never heard that story. I think I remember something about that. You telling me something about that, like at the end of the night. Yeah. Yep. End of the night, we discovered it. <laughs> I wonder, because I felt like I got my drink swapped with somebody at some point accidentally. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that was it, where I took another sip and was like, "This is a different beer." <laughs> it's it's very possible because I mean because we were we were serving them too, and I think like pint glasses for the coal she knows people are putting down pints of tank seven at a time you know it's you're, you're gonna have a wild party listen it's a wedding yeah that's very it's very true that's very true a kansas city style wedding we got we got a party as hard as the streets of the west bottoms man i mean if you're pounding tank sevens <laughs> yeah it's not gonna be too hard Ugh. that was the wedding where uh, i had not packed any dress clothes because i just thought i would like thrift some dope dress clothes which in hindsight 
that's kind of a dumb plan <laughs> because it was like 90 minutes before the wedding and I didn't have, but I was like, ah, it's Kansas City. I'm going to find some like sick threads to wear to this thing. And sure enough, I did. This lady literally named Tex Houston sold me this dope ass vest and like a Western shirt. I mean, technically, I think Tex Houston was her radio name, but she was like a disc jockey who runs. I, I really should be able to name drop the store right now so we could like tag them. Uh, we'll we'll fix it in post. But shout out to Tex Houston. Hope she's doing well. Friend of the podcast, Tex Houston, getting Kyle looking really good for uh, for my wedding party. Thank you so much. Yeah. And and how vain to just be rolling into my buddy's wedding, being like, I look dope. It's like, yeah, you're getting ma- married. That's cool. I look sick. You did look pretty crisp. I'm not gonna lie. It was like a good thrift shop attire. It wasn't, you know, the random pieces of random things that were just semi-fitting. It, it, it was a coherent outfit. I have to give you that. I appreciate that. Confidence is key. Confidence That's right. Is key. Confidence is key. Well, shall we? Uh, speaking of dumpster fires, who said dumpster fire? <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez! Tell me how you really feel, Kyle. <laughs> oh, that sounds like oh. I was referring to your wedding. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh. <laughs> it's a good segue. I know what we're getting at. <laughs> Well, there we go. Let's talk about this this quarterfinal against Philadelphia. Man, this did not go how I thought it would. Not only did it not go how I wanted it to, it did not go how I thought it would. The big stories pre-match were this sort of showdown between goalies Andre Blake and Tim Melia. Melia, obviously well-known for his resume over the past, you know, five seasons. Andre Blake has been playing really well in the past, like, four or five games. I mean, he's he's he generally plays well, but he's really been a big reason that Philly got as far as they did. A couple, three even clean sheets up to this point. Um so it was basically that defensive story paired with the Matt Beasler question mark with Peter Vermees going with the back line of Punchech, Graham Smith, Luis Martins, Graham Zussi, and leaving Matt on the bench, which I'll, I'll throw it to you guys now, but pregame, I was totally okay with that because even some foibles and scary moments aside, I felt that after our first couple group stage matches, defensively, we played fairly well. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think, I mean, especially in Vancouver... I guess you could say the best defense is a good offense because we didn't give them like any chances to really test our defense in that game. And, you know, the game before Salt Lake, Salt Lake, you know, really put the pressure on us for most of the game. And I felt like they were winning the first half most of the time, uh, you know, outs- our first, you know, minute goal nonwithstanding. But, you know, the defense held Pat there. And, and you know, like the, the commentators said on the TV broadcast yesterday, Melia went like 400 or 700 plus minutes without letting a goal in. So yeah, I felt cautiously optimistic that D had figured things out. Yeah, and uh, the the big question for me early game is: Were we playing calm and playing patient, playing really clinical, or were we just ineffective? Because early game, I was actually happy in the first fifteen minutes with the way that we played, and I thought that as Philadelphia tried to make the game physical and their fouls were sort of increasing in in intensity on us. And I mean, there weren't any yellows handed out for a long time. I won't say it was as much of a physical game as earlier in the tournament, but Philly was clearly trying to be aggressive, but I thought we weathered that well and I, and, and I thought we stayed collected and then it just kind of, the, the wheels fell off. Well, I'm going to have to disagree with you right out of the bat here. The very first thing I noticed when the game started was that we came out running. I mean, running and gunning and playing aggressive. 
And I was noticing a lot of the long passes and crosses we had were off target early on. And it was really frustrating to see that because I think that's been one of the highlights and what's really separated us from other teams in this tournament so far was the fact that our passing was was so strong. It was always pinpoint. You know, guys like Zussi, as I mentioned last episode, were putting sniper level crosses in there. But calling back to the Kansas City Chiefs Detroit Lions game from this last year, that was the first game where Patrick Mahomes, someone who was normally so on point with just dropping balls in there, was overthrowing some of his receivers on basic routes that weren't like Pat. That's a good point. Uh, I was going to say it would seem that, that it was just basically a different defensive formation for the outside guys, you know, seeing Philadelphia and how they're playing. In relation to what Patrick Mahomes he was playing against, the thing was like a cover three or something like that where it was just he was seeing different guys in different places so I mean maybe Philadelphia was able to knock him out of their comfort zone in that Noah that's a really good point there and and in fact on the broadcast they were making quite a bit out of the fact that Philly stuck with their diamond midfield formation all the way through the first half and just continued to kind of chip away at us and so especially with the different lineup for us than at least compared to historically with Beasler out of there um, and then continually sort of shifting Russell and Shelton around I mean Shelton was out in this game he was he was out with a minor injury um, we could also talk about how that affected us too Russell seems to be hit or miss too for me it was like the way he if he has doesn't have enough space he can't really he's not really pinpoint I guess that that sort of answers our question which is were we clinical and patient or just tepid? And and I guess I'm hearing from you, Reese, that we we maybe were as aggressive as you wanted, but just not clean and just not on point. So then we got burned for it. But I got to say that first goal from Montero for Philly, we really got sliced and diced on the, on the defensive line. Philadelphia had good spacing all the way down. They made multiple runs into the box. And at the end of the day, they pulled our, our defenders towards the ball. And so they, they pulled us down to the right side of the pitch and just left tons of space open for multiple late runs up top. And that's honestly a similar thing to how we got burned on the third goal. Got to say, though, that second goal of the 26th minute is just really inexcusable. It's it's really hard to it's hard to blame that all on Luis Martins. He had sort of a bad idea to try to clear it back while already being outnumbered like four to two. But that's such a heat of the moment thing panic mode. I can't blame it all on him, although I can take back my Luis Martins redemption rant from last episode. <laughs> officially redacted. So anyway, Oof. sorry, I, I guess I, I kind of sidetracked us there, but let's go goal by goal. So this first goal from Montero, I feel that we really got beat fair and square. And let's talk about that Martinez yellow for Philly immediately after the goal. And that set up an honestly what looked to be a pretty great free kick chance for us that really just imploded and resulted in our second goal. Oh my gosh. Okay, so here's the thing I have to ask on this one, and I was I was furious when that happened. I understand we try and play an offsides trap on defense, you know, having the guys hug right around the midfield stripe. How did we not have one single player in the backfield on their half in case something like that happened? I mean, it's it's just clear and simple miscommunication, I think. Is it beyond miscommunication or is it a lack of uh, discipline? That's what I want to know because it wasn't like they were all kind of straddling the halfway line and they're like, oh, oh, crap, we're all a step over the line. They were past the freaking halfway circle on the other side of the field, man. This wasn't – what were they hoping that a ball was going to peter out to them and they could cross it in from like 45 yards out? I'm not going to blame this on discipline, but I might blame it on optimism or risk. Lack of awareness. 
Yeah, because I mean, we we'd just been dunked on, and obviously the your first thought is to just get it back as quick as you can. I think y'all have probably heard the statistics of goals scored after goals. I mean, lots of them come soon, and it's just they both came to hurt us. <laughs> Well, I mean, they really did. And that, that's one that really was the dagger. Not the third one, but that one. Because that was two in a row. They had been frustrating us in the game up to that point. We couldn't get anything going. And, you know, that's... You know, we talked about the substitute... Not the substitutions, but the... We, we talked about the people that started this game and where people were, you know, placed this time. Kinda wasn't starting. And I I thought when that guy was dead sprinting, you know, to beat our defenders, I think he got past Zussi and everybody, that's where it really hurt not to have Kinda. Kinda would have had the closing speed to at least make that guy have to get around him, and that might stop the counterattack. But, you know, we shouldn't have been in that position in the first place, in my opinion. And I think you make a good point about our composure, because once that started to fall after the second goal, I mean, it was... It made the third goal with the same playbook, late runs, drawing our defenders into the ball to free up space on the opposite side. It made it easy, and it made it easy for Santos to get his second goal overall third. And then, you know, I mean, they've just put us down already. Yeah, it was 2 nothing, but it felt way more than 2 nothing. Yeah. I got to say, though, we really found a bright spot in the match with that stoppage time first half goal, Russell to Polito. That was really perfect on both the assist from Johnny, the long cross, and then just the perfectly executed header just, you know, six inches out from the defender's reaching boot. It was perfect. And it goes to show that we're never out of a game with Alan Pulido up front. Oh, my gosh. You know, I had this thought last night watching the game. Obviously, the guy's not Zlatan, but I watch him to the same degree that I did when he was playing with LA Galaxy last year in that anytime he has the ball, I'm like on the edge of my seats. I'm thinking this could end in a goal. I'm not sure what's going to happen, but this is, you know, to a degree, man playing among boys. You know, he's just, you saw the way he orchestrated that goal. He set up that long cross across the box, kind of waited, like got behind everybody's like, I am wide freaking open right back to him. Give and go textbook header and also i want to say uh i might go one step further and say i'd rather have pulido on my team right now than zlatan at his age right you know that that's very fair i would say the one thing zlatan's got on him is four inches of height if that yeah yeah <laughs> that's fair enough. and a lot more ego yeah, yeah. that's very true <laughs> but i uh Reese, I really like your uh, setting up Pulido as like the thorn in the side of Carlos Vela this season. That's awesome. Oh, absolutely, dude. Carlos Vela has the benefit of playing in a major market. If Pulido was playing on one of the L.A. teams or for Seattle or Red Bulls, I think that'd be like this guy is, you know, a top two player in the league. Who's better, Vela, Pulido? You know, whereas they're just kind of like Pulido is also this very prominent goal scorer we got from Mexico. That's about all the credit they give him, to be honest. Small market bias, baby. It's a real thing. It's a real thing. That'd be a great podcast name. (laughs) Small market bias. I'm going to get a tattoo, I think, on my right leg and maybe even my left leg that says, Pulido is greater than Vela. Fight me. (laughs) Pixar didn't happen, Reese. Fight me. That's that's commitment right there. So before we get into the second half, I want to talk about the five substitution strategy. This is a thing that's been implemented in all the major leagues ever since they restarted. The Bundesliga started with it, continued to the European leagues, it's continued to us. And it is just 
frankly, a, a rule allowing for the time off from COVID-19 and the fact that players may, might, might be less match fit and allowing five substitutions instead of the normal three. Now, there's a lot being floated about how this rule might become not necessarily permanent, but it might stay in the in the upcoming 2020-21 season. I want to talk about our usage of the five substrat and whether it's here to stay or should it be and how we've done with that over the past few matches. Kyle, why don't you lead us into this one? So much is made of Vermise being reluctant to sub and we've seen that in a frustrating fashion in a few of these matches, both Minnesota and Colorado included. I got to say this match, I thought his substitutions gave us a chance to get back in it. I thought that subbing Kinda and Amadou Dia in for Busio and Luis Martins was a great move. I thought both Kinda and Dia played well, shored up some of the issues in both pace and defense that we needed. I thought Shaloui and Ilié offered Gerso and Hernandez brought the Gerso Rocket Squad swag back to the field, even though Gerso picked up a yellow. And I thought that our late sub for Cameron Duke to give him some playing time, even though he didn't really play that well, I thought that was a good move. And so and, and and also because we made moves that then Jim Curtin had to counter with Philly because at this point of course he's trying to play defense and he's just filtering out his five subs essentially for fresh legs he subbed off both goal scorers I believe basically to counter our moves all the way along and so I would grade both managers at more or less an A for the five substrat this game I wouldn't necessarily grade Vermees that way in our previous matches well you know it's funny you bring this up this way I think the tale of this tournament is Vermees and kind of plugging players in and out of the starting rotation and who's coming off the bench. My hope is that he's playing chess while everybody's playing checkers. Like Vermees is like, I'm here to figure out this team for the rest of the year so we can go into the MLS Cup strong while everybody else is so focused on getting this Champions League berth and just winning this tournament. The reason I say that is I don't think he started anything resembling the same players lining up in the same positions two games in a row, did he? No, sir. The closest we've had is who's been coming off the bench. And like you said, we've had the Rocket Squad coming on, and that's been effective. But that has been the only consistent strategic move personnel-wise throughout this whole tournament. And I gotta say, I like Busio better as a sub. I like Busio and... Gerso as subs. I, you know, I mean, that's not an issue when Shelton's starting, but he was hurt. Well, I think we're really seeing eye to eye on this because this to me was a tale of five games with five different starting lineups, some of which worked much more effective than others. By and large, I would say this one was probably the worst of the lineups that were out there. You know, I don't like Busio starting. I don't think he's ready to start, and I think he showed it that game. Uh, Martins, you know, again was fine he hasn't really wowed me we've seen better combinations of starting lineups with more chemistry and i think consistently the subs of bringing in the rocket squad as you have said and having like fresh fast athletic legs late in the game has been really helpful in bringing us back into games and for the closing sake but the one thing that none of these combinations of players starters or bench we haven't been able to find the back of the net consistently and that's what really killed us all tournament and really killed us last night. That's a great segue to a brief shout out again to Graham Smith, who got a perfect look at a header again. Three great 
opportunities to put the ball on the frame went over the bar each time two in the last game one yesterday and it really makes me think if he can improve his goal scoring ability the fact that he has the height and he's strong and he's quick and for some reason Johnny Russell is able to consistently find him uh, if over the next couple weeks three weeks four weeks until the season gets started again that could really be a weapon the fact that they consistently got the ball to him on the corner that's a really good point we are finding situations and situational players that are being really effective i think it's just a matter of finding you know a starting lineup that's really going to gel and like be cohesive and get us off to a great start in some of these games you know it's it's sometimes a lot of the times in this tournament too late to be making some of these substitutions and adjustments you know because we're already down one in this case two three goals well two things to kind of wrap up this analysis of our quarterfinal that many of us would like to forget but i think there there are lessons to be learned going into whatever the rest of the regular season will be first of all i want to talk about this underdog talk that they seem to love to just beat to death does it matter in this coronavirus time does it matter in mls in general in which there have always been strange streaky teams are we assessed fairly um, in terms of the fact that we had a horrible season last year in which we really should have been better and this year we're trying to kind of you know shore up the issues what do you guys think well i think the reason with that is i had this conversation to work the other day i really see sporting kansas city as the st louis cardinals of the mls where it's largely a small to mid-market team but consistently good every year and even if like this isn't their year the cardinals are probably going to make the playoffs the cardinals are probably going to cause some headaches for a lot of teams in the playoffs and that's really how i think that sporting kansas city has developed itself as a squad over the last 25 years while still retaining the small market bias no question no i i think peter vermese's reputation is pretty i mean concrete now right so the expectations are always high, and I, it's, I know I'm a local, but it just seems like they're always going to find a way to downplay what Kansas City sports do. Like, maybe the Royals got their fair shake in some, some the Chiefs this year, but, I mean, sporting has been, like we said, they've been consistent. They've, they've kept a tempo, you know, they've kept a reputation. I so. guess if I had to sum that up better for the, you know, the TLDRs of the world, I would say that sporting Kansas City has managed to develop itself into as far as the MLS goes, a national brand in a small market city. I, I strongly agree with everything that you said. I I think this ties into my final question about this squad and this performance in this tournament. And that's what is our ceiling? What's our potential? And how do we reach it? I know for me, that means settled, sort of settle into the process of tinkering with the lineup and finding what's best for us. Uh, I think that also means continuing to work out the weak spots and understand that as the league improves, our moves to improve, such as signing Puncic or signing Pulido or developing our Sporting Kansas City 2 team from which we're getting a lot of homegrown prospects, that's not going to automatically just keep us as a favorite as we saw last year. I mean, we just really paid the price for being pretty confident going into the season. And so I... I think it's finding that balancing point between improving the team, but also keeping pace with the improvements of the league and also being patient enough to do so when, as Noah said, Vermees has the expectation of win of winning and we have a history of winning. 
Well, I suppose you could say that Sporting Kansas City isn't just sitting along while the world passes them by and it was, you know, made noticeable this year as they had that multi-million dollar deal to go out and say, we need Polito, we're going to go get Polito. As far as our ceiling goes and how do we get there, what's really interesting is that I would say all tournament long, if I had to grade the offense, I would give the offense a B plus. Doesn't matter who was in there, doesn't matter who was subbed in there. We, more often than not, were pressuring them with a lot of shots, creating a lot of shot opportunities, looking good on set pieces. But as I said earlier, what killed us was we couldn't find the back of the net. So that's what drops them down to a B plus. Uh, as far as like, you know, midfield, defensive, all that, you know, all that goes. I didn't see one combination of players that I really liked. I didn't say, oh, great, you know, this player subbed in, time to shore up the defense. And I think a big part of that is we haven't had a defensive identity since the Opara trade, man. I think what we lost with Opara was what we saw in the Chiefs defense when Eric Berry went down. We didn't have someone to be like the field general and coordinate players other places, and that's what killed us in 2018, and it wasn't until Tyron Matthew took over in 2019 that we really had that person tightening and shoring things up. I love this analogy because it puts the impetus and the responsibility on the leadership skills of the player, and this is absolutely accurate because Honey Badger was great before he came to the Chiefs, and now he's great with the Chiefs. Opara was great with us, and now he's great even better maybe in Minnesota. So I, I think that's a very apt comparison. I, I see what you're saying. I remember Opara as well, and I remember watching a backline a game with the backline of Opara, and it was, I mean, 95% shut down out yep. there just because he knew how to m- maneuver everybody, and, and then he also took, you know, led by example – which is exactly what Matthew does is he sets everybody up and then whenever that play goes off, he's going to where he needs to and doing what he needs to do. Fantastic analogy. And for, I think maybe the, I don't know the specifics of how the sporting's coaching is in terms of their defense, but that's also another thing that the Chiefs had to get, had to change up was take Bob Sutton out because it wasn't working. You know, if it's not working, They've got to look at coaching as well. Well, if I can take the baton from you and run with it, you know, that's a really good point again with Bob Sutton to make some changes. Because to get back to Kyle's original question of what's the ceiling of this team and what do we expect, I would say I expect as the season goes on and we find the right starters and the right players to come off the bench, the offense is going to look more akin to what we saw in the first two games of the year against Vancouver and against Houston, which I think is going to be a keep up with us if you can level of offense. We put in six goals in those two games. Uh, The thing that really worries me, though, is that the defense, I don't think there is an answer, and I don't think the answer is going to come at least this season. So what I'm worried about is this could play out very much so like the 2018-2019 Chiefs, where if the offense gets clicking, it's going to be a catch-me-if-you-can offense, but that defense is going to be right there to say, thanks for picking up the slack every game. A sieve, basically. And there's going to be a game where it's not going to be able to pick up the slack for the defense. Well, guys, what do you say we bring this home with a beer review? Reese, you want to take him through it? Sounds good to me. fairly familiar with the Kansas City beer scene. Uh, I also assume you're fairly familiar with Boulevard Brewing Company. I am. I am. I've I've lived in, you know, different areas of the country with different breweries, and I, I think Boulevard is ultimately my favorite one. Yeah, that's pretty high break, because you were living out in Oregon a few years ago and, like, sampling the delicacies out there, weren't you? Yeah, it was uh, Deschutes and, oh my gosh, there's a, a Red Hook, and I lived up in Washington, but... 
Yeah, there's like 14 breweries near where I lived. I'm sorry, I said I said Oregon and not Washington. No disrespect. There's uh, both. There's both. Oh, it was both? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, shout out to friends of the podcast, State of Oregon, State of Washington. Uh, so the big question is, while you were up there, did anybody ever give you the lowdown on how to properly review a beer? No. That's good because we don't do it properly here either. We have our own system. It's uh, It's five steps, each one more exciting than the last we have aroma appearance flavor mouthfeel and aftertaste and we also end with a special one called bdq which stands for what kyle basic drinkability quotient basic drinkability quotient i like it so first thing we're going to talk you through this noah so first thing i want you to do is i want you to pour that beer into a glass Done. What beer is this? A single wide. Now, I want you to just uh, get a good, slow inhale of the beer. As Armando likes to point out, we have a dominant nostril. Could be your right, could be your left, hopefully not your center. And uh, just what, what kind of notes are you picking up from this beer? And here's the thing. There are no wrong answers. Right, right. Uh, right off the bat, citrus. Citrus. Okay, right on. Definitely citrusy. Orangey, kind of like an orange peel. Can also taste the air. Well, taste. <laughs> you can smell the. Oh man, yeah, the it's earthy. Sounds good to me. Sounds good. Okay, so th- the next question is, what do you see appearance wise? Like, what what color is the beer? How transparent is it? Is it transparent? Uh, is it hazy? Is it clear? What what are you seeing in the glass? Uh, it's definitely hazy. Okay. And uh. Basically, you know, it's just your basic IPA. It's it's got you know, it's relatively clear as well, but there's a decent amount of head, and it's I don't know, it's it looks very very much citrusy and hazy. What's the retention on the head look like? Has it been holding it pretty well, or is it down considerably? Yeah. It's it's holding it extremely well. How would you describe the bubbles on that? Is it pillowy? Is it a uh, consistent foamy? Uh, it's very it's very consistent. It's very the the head isn't too much. It's not too much head, but the bubbles are consistently rising. And I mean, you know, it's God. It, I mean, it's pretty much looks like it's sustaining itself. <laughs> Perfect. Even though it's poured in, yeah. Sign of a good beer. All right, so now everyone's favorite part of the beer review, Noah. I need you to take a nice long sip of that, let it run over your tongue, and let me know what the flavor's like on that. Oh man, it's um, it's I mean it's bitter, but it's IPA, right? So it's like you know, but it's perfect. Yep. The citrus and the bitter are combined. Bitters a little bit, it, it, it takes it over, but not to the point where, you know, it's it's uh, not palatable, that's for sure. Well, that's good. And then, I was going to say, and then the earthiness, you can also taste the, the, the slight bit of earthiness in it. It's... I'm going to say, you're, you're really dissecting this beer pretty well because the, the technical style for it, it's a really old school IPA called a British bitter style. So you're getting a lot of the earthy notes, which it has. A lot of old school IPAs are. It's uh, getting a lot of hot bitterness and citrus as opposed to, you know, tropical fruits you'd find in like a, you know, a hazier IPA like a New England nowadays. So you, I, I got to say you're killing it. So next up after flavor is mouthfeel. What's what's the mouthfeel like on this beer? Very light. Very... I. I don't know. It's there's nothing very. I mean, it, it coats your tongue, and yeah, you definitely taste the hoppiness, 
but it's also extremely light and it, and it also sustains through to the end. I mean, it's it's kind of it's like the perfect amount of each flavor that 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 it, I don't gives. I don't even know. I could try to like explain it, but like. I mean, it, it sustains it perfectly. I mean, single white has got to be one of the best, well-rounded beers that I know. Oh yeah, and it's it, it survived the cullings of a lot of other IPAs and former beer brands at Boulevard. You know, so that thing's just like, you know, it's a Twinkie, man. It's never going to go out of fashion. Yeah, that's right. Last one we have for you then is, what's the aftertaste like? You know, does it differentiate greatly from drinking the beer and you know waiting a few seconds, or is it pretty similar? Very strong citrus aftertaste, and then immediately the hoppiness comes in, and it's very light on how bitter it is after the aftertaste. It's 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 almost it's very refreshing, dude. That's the way, the best way to put it. Like plainly, is it's just <clears throat> if you like IPAs, it's a very refreshing and light IPA. That's awesome. Okay, so then we're gonna go back to the top and go down. Aroma, give that thing a 1 to 10. What would you rate it from like 1 being just pure garbage water and 10 being the opposite of garbage water? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a 7 or 8. You know, I've smelled better beers, but I mean, in terms of like, I'll give it a 7.5 just because it's, it, it, it's high, man. It's very high, but it's like you can't. You can't go, you can't go above like an eight or a nine. It has to be the best, one of the best beers you've ever tried. You know, dude, I love a man with standards. You know. <laughs> All right, so then appearance one to ten. Oh, that's a that's a solid solid eight. It's a solid eight. It's just it's a very the very inviting looking beer. Good to hear. Flavor one to ten. Six point nine. It's it's really good, but it's also it's not it's not the strongest IPA. It's just a very light. It's very light. So yeah, the the flavor is good, but I'd want like one. Kyle, or two is, that, is that the first point decimal rating we've had that hasn't ended in a five or a zero? Uh, I think so. I think you're making history, Dude, Noah. You're freaking pioneer. You can't you can't just go over the top, man. Like ten's got to be like the the beer that you basically, you know get a chub on the first the minute you drink it amen brother all right so mouthfeel <laughs> one to ten mouthfeel is a solid 6.5 that's good uh aftertaste one to ten seven this is strong strong high seven then the most important category of all bdq basic drinkability quotient that's an eight my friend and i'll give it that high just because i mean you're never really gonna want to pound a six pack of pale ale but man you drink you could drink three of these quite easily question is single wide the dales of boulevard Ooh. you know that that's tricky i think in terms of flavor i think dales sits right between the og boulevard pale ale and single wide because i think dales a little more citrusy than our ipa is ours is fairly malty all things considered but i mean in terms of drinkability and what it is i would almost liken dales pale ale more to like single wide mm-hmm Okay, so I also have a Boulevard Classic here. I've got a really old school one. I've got the Bully Porter, which is a robust American style porter. And for those of you playing, Good choice. Thank you, thank you. For those of you playing at home, the, the American Porter is going to be a little more hoppy style of porter. You know, you think porter, you think kind of smooth, velvety, chocolatey-ish. You know, 
tannins and tones in there. Now, this one's a little... This one's a little more bitter. Not like you're drinking an IPA, but the IBUs are sitting at 49. You know, it's it's a little bit different. So I'm going to go ahead and give us an aroma on this bad boy. You know, it's, it's really interesting. You really do get a lot more of the, the bitter notes in this, primarily because of the amount of hops. Man, it's it's like really dark chocolate. Like less rich sweetness, more of the bitterness that comes with it. For aroma... I think I forgot that about Bully Porter. I haven't had one in a long time. I remember it now. It's different, man. It it's one of the first beers I ever had when I turned 21. It, it, it's pretty impressive. Uh, aroma, this this is a hot take. Not that it's bad, but I'm going to give Aroma a 6 just because it's not very prominent. And it's kind of, you know, looking looking at a dog that goes quack, you know. It's, it's interesting. It's not what you expect, so it's throwing off your senses. <laughs> uh, appearance. This is one of my favorite parts about this beer. Uh, both in the beer color and in the head color, it's very much like Coca-Cola. This isn't what you would call a black beer or like a, even a black licorice kind of beer. It's a really just like caramel color that you take that dial and you just crank it up to like, you know, nine, nine and a half. It's, it's a really attractive beer. The head's pretty good. The bubbles are a little bit bigger on this than, again, you know, most porters and stouts you see. It's kind of intermittent. The lace on the glass is kind of spider webby, uh, but it looks pretty good overall. You know, I'm going to give appearance of this a... I'm going to follow Noah's lead and go off the decimal system here. I'm going to give this a 7.7 7 on appearance. Uh, flavor. Oh, and here's where baby comes out to play. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I have said this many times. I think one of the most underrated things that Boulevard does is porters and stouts. And this one is definitely one of the flag bearers for being underrated. I think this is a fan-freaking-tastic delicious beer. It's like drinking delicious, sweet, rich pipe tobacco, which I know for some people be like, eh, smoke is gross, <laughs> but like, no. When you know about like the richness of stuff, there's a reason Michael Jordan's always chomping on one of those things in his interviews, man. It is delicious. <laughs> for all the kids out there, smoking is bad. Don't smoke. <laughs> Don't smoke. Don't vape. I know you're vaping. Mom's a teacher. She sees you guys sucking on your USB sticks in the middle of class under your <laughs> under your freaking pullover sweatshirts like you guys are clever. Get out of here. Reese, um, not only are you bringing the heat to the youth, you're bringing you're bringing the power of Bully Porter to the people, and we just appreciate that about you, man. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. You appreciate that, man, because you know, don't vape and don't be a bully. Drink your bully and drink your vape. Uh, <laughs> so what I'm getting at, wow. what I'm getting at with this, I'm gonna be dead honest. When, when are we gonna buy Facebook ads, my dude? It's time. Dude, it's, it's like, Sound bites. Sound bites, man. Forever and ever. You know, I'm gonna say flavor on this 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 is a 9.2 man this thing is delicious if you're drinking this and knowing what you're drinking you know otherwise it can really be pearls before swine not that you know people are swine and everyone okay i'm gonna cut that don't go pc now bro i'm not gonna go pc yeah and, and the reason i say that is just because it, it's so raiders fans it's so simple yeah, and so complex you. that like if you know what you're drinking it's fantastic if you don't you're just like this is kind of a bitter porter uh, mouth feel again very carbony for being a porter or a stout I get some uh, 
tangs on the sides of my tongue and kind of in the back molar area. I think, again, that's from the bitterness of it. But, I mean, it's definitely not inoffensive to drink. Again, I'm going to give it a 7.5 because it's nothing crazy, nothing out of this world. Aftertaste. Again, ma'am, when you drink this beer and you just let it unfurl, there's so much complexity to it. That pipe tobacco taste is there. The rich, sweet notes of the dark chocolate is there. Aftertaste, I'm going to give this, you know, right up there kind of with the... uh, with the flavor itself, and I'm going to give it an 8.7. 8.7 on aftertaste. Last but not least, basic drinkability quotient, BDQ. I'm going to hang this one pretty high up there. Uh, I like the BDQ of this beer partially because it's a really old school Boulevard IPA, which kind of represents, you know, like a different era of the company, so to say, like the early days. You know, and I, I, by early days, I mean, you know, like back when this was just. I mean, there was a time growing up in Iowa that you could see wheat, you could see bully porter, you could see, oh geez, pale ale, and you know that that kind of was Boulevard. You know, this was I'm talking pre-Smokestack series Boulevard. You know, just really old school. What I thought the company was, and I think what the company kind of was at the time. You know, just the, this small Midwest brewer that had no idea that it was going to wind up being one of the top. 10 biggest craft breweries in the country. So, you know me, I love retro, I love vintage, I love old school. BDQ Bully Porter 8.5. Nice. Reese, a classic interview from you. Thank you for that. Beautiful. Listen, everybody, thank you for accompanying us on this journey through the MLS's back tournament. And uh, we, we appreciate you being along for the ride for the fledgling days of Fountain City Sports Media. Special thank you to Noah for subbing for Armando today. Really appreciate having you on. And it gives us something to talk sh- to him about when he comes back. And with that, please remember to follow us on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you like to listen. Consider making a donation to us on Patreon. We'll get you more sweet content in there. And until then, Uh, Let's hope that uh, sporting uh, continues to do some work and uh, we'll talk to you when we're back. 